Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Gamarjoba, and welcome to the history of Sacarvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto. And this is episode 8, The Mithridatic Wars, Colchis. Well, it's here. We finally did it. We reached another round of actual sources that talk about Iberia and Colchis. I guess we should thank the Romans for that. As I was researching this episode, it became apparent that there's so much information to cover that I will need to split the narrative up between Colchis and Iberia and just mention how they interact in both episodes. It'll make it easier to understand, since Colchis and Iberia both experienced the Mithridatic Wars, but felt completely different effects. We'll start off with Colchis, because Colchis became the territory of Mithridates VI Eupator, otherwise known as the Poison King. In our last episode, we went through four different Iberian kings, about whom the sources don't have much to say other than what might have gone on during their rule. As we enter the Mithridatic Wars, a much broader perspective that includes how Colchis and Iberia interact with the rest of the world, especially concerning their roles in the war, begins to cover up. Now, it's best to start off with how Mithridates acquired Colchis, because there are two theories regarding this. The first theory is that Mithridates took control of the region through an inheritance. I know what you're thinking, but Roberto, Mithridates isn't Colchian at all, and Here's where I tell you that you're right. Mithridates himself also took control of Paphlagonia and the Bosporus through inheritance, since foreign kings decided to grant him the territory thanks to his complete magnanimity. If I said that right. Eh. This was quite a common occurrence in the 2nd and early 1st centuries BC in Asia Minor, but of course, Rome was usually the benefactor of such an inheritance. Now, what reason would a king have to give his land to a foreign ruler? Well, that reason is plain and simple. Stability. Why would you want to hand an unstable kingdom to your heir when your dynastic line is withering in power? Why not give your land to a much stronger empire and let your people be stable and prosperous, especially when it would allow for the new dynasty to protect you from threats? Now, this is pure conjecture, of course, but Colchis was anything but stable. The Colchian state was severely fragmented at this time, with central authority all but gone. The Skeptokoi, or the Scepter Bearers, each ran their own piece of land, and were more than likely in charge of their own separate tribes. Now, it's rather hard to try getting people to see things from a more national perspective, when the main power holder and influencer of their lives is their clan leader. This made things all the more difficult for any central authority to really take control. The last person we really have on record as holding power is a Salasis in 150 BC, Kuji during Parnavaz's time, and King Aedes from who knows when. 
This disunity really made it hard to find out who oversaw Colchis, and written sources don't say too much. Now, back off the tangent. According to Strabo, Colchis really struggled to control its territory and was socially fractured along tribal lines. However, by 100 BC, when Mithridates VI came in, Colchis finally began to see some prosperity in the land. Strabo even humbly mentions that his maternal great-uncle Moafernes was placed as an administrator of Colchis, a prestigious position that only the friends and families of Mithridates had access to. Yes, very humble. This newfound prosperity brought Colchis into a golden age it had not seen since the time of King Aedes, whenever that was, and Mithridates VI eventually managed to unify a land that had long been plagued by disunity. Now, how did he do that? He kept the Skeptoikoi system. I know, wrong move. However, he allowed them to exist if they were subservient to his governor's authority because he did not want to cause further trouble by kicking out tribal leaders and having people in revolt. So, this administrative superstructure became more of a sign of, of the Skeptokoi's power than a cause of disunity in Colchis. This also spells pretty bad news because if something were to happen to the Pontic Empire, like, um, let's say, losing a war against some Romans, things can go back down the drain. So, before we forget, I did mention there were two theories, so here's the second theory about how Mithridates acquired Colchis. Good old-fashioned conquest. So, we have this historian, a guy named Memnon, who wrote the local history of Heraclea Pontica in the early 2nd century BC, which is now the Turkish town of Karadeniz Erile. Erile. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. Like, if you're Turkish, forgive me. Uh, it's, it's the G with the little smiley face on top. Um, he does not seem to mention Mithridates inheriting Colchis at all. He claims that Mithridates, like the violent person he is, used force to bring the Transcaucasian kings under his thumb, and because he kept expanding, even north of the Caucasus, the Romans began to feel threatened. Now, what does Memnon say about Mithridates' activities in Colchis? Our favorite answer on the show, absolutely nothing. I swear George is an interesting place. Ancient historians, please pay attention to us. When it comes to these competing theories, it's important to keep something in mind. Just because Mithridates may have conquered the area doesn't mean he didn't also inherit it. History shows, quite frequently, that people go to war over inheritances. If you want something more modern, the War of Spanish Succession. And if you want something more contemporary, just look at Attalus III, King of Pergamon. He didn't want the Romans to just come in and take his kingdom when he died, so he just gave it to them. Of course, when Attalus III died, the people revolted and blood was spilt when the Romans tried to take it over. However, we're not a Roman history podcast, so let's get back to Georgia. We need to remember that the Colchian tribes tended to be rather violent, so even if Mithridates was named as the inheritor of Colchis by the Colchian king, he still needed to contend with the Skeptokoi. With that out of the way, of what significance was Colchis to Mithridates? Well, Mithridates was building an empire out of the Black Sea region, and much of Transcaucasia had become part of it by 100 BC. Colchis, thanks to being on the sea, was brought under his direct control, while the nations of Iberia and Armenia became friends and allies. To cement this alliance with Armenia, Mithridates pulled a classic move and created an alliance through marriage. 
No better way to stay in power than making it a family matter, eh? Finger guns. Colchis, thanks to its vast resources, was a major source of logistic support for Mithridates and the rest of the Black Sea region. Its importance to Mithridates was made apparent in the Second Mithridatic War against the Roman praetor Lucius Licinius Murena, which proved an easy victory. Mithridates did lots of things in Colchis that we don't really know about, but the important thing is that somewhere along the way, Mithridates crowned his son, also named Mithridates, as the king of Colchis to stabilize the region. Now, to differentiate them, I'm going to call the Poison King Mithridates, Mithridates or the Poison King, and Mithridates, the king of Colchis, is going to be Mithridates of Colchis. Alright, got it? Good, done. Things seem great for Colchis, don't they? They're prospering under a new king in another empire. Smooth sailing, right? Wrong. Mithridates' son's rule was rather short-lived, as the Poison King suspected his son of treason because he was so popular that the locals started demanding that his son be crowned king instead of Mithridates himself. So, because his son was more popular than him, Mithridates executed him. I guess we have a nominee for the Father of the Year award, y'all. This probably happened before or during the Second Mithridatic War because, well, Mithridates was quite concerned with the Colchians after and during that war. I would be too, if I literally just killed the king that a whole but fragmented nation literally demanded. However, in Mithridates' fight against the Achaea people to the north and west of the Colchian region, Colchis was used as a base. These Achaea are Scythian people, who we just can't place on a map. I tried looking and came up short. If any of you listeners can find it, tell me and you get a shout out. Colchis became a major source of resources well into the Third Mithridatic War, as they provided land and sea troops to the Pontic Empire, and the fleets were constructed from the dense forests. The Roman historian Appian even suggests that our now-dead Mithridates of Colchis, even though his father suspected him of treason, used his position to help his father against the Roman commander Fimbria in the Second Mithridatic War, because our sources never like agreeing, so he was probably alive during the Second War, or died before, who knows? As Commander Fimbria had a rather strong naval force. See, Poison King, your son helped you out, and you just had to go and leave him hanging. Uh, no pun intended, we don't actually know how he was executed. Now, Mithridates was not the only one who knew of Colchis's superior resources. The Roman commander Lucullus, who was attempting to take Sinope from Mithridates, went to the commander of Colchis, who just so happened to be Macarus, Mithridates' son, and gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. Friendship. That offer was friendship, and an alliance with the Romans. Macarus, like the dutiful son he is, did the right thing and agreed to send supplies to Lucullus and stop supplying his father. Uh, wait, what? I mean, I think I understand his point of view. If you just saw your dad kill your brother over suspected treason... It's probably better to cut your losses and commit actual treason. Also, how bad of a father must you be if your sons are willing to betray you? Yikes. Anyways, according to Memnon, who really disliked Mithridates, Macarus' decision to Lucullus was decisive in his capture of Sinope thanks to the stoppage in the flow of resources. In response, Mithridates' generals decided to abandon Sinope and ran off to Colchis where they sought refuge among the Sanege and the Lazi tribes, 
who were right outside of the control of Makaris, but still within Colchis. See, even though you're in charge of Colchis, you're really not. Colchis ends up being a major position for Mithridates and his generals to strategically retreat to, air quotes, <coughs> I mean, <coughs> run away, <coughs> in the latter part of the Third Mithridatic War. Sorry about that cough, so I just had to get something out. After Tigranes II of Armenia's defeat and defection to the Romans, Mithridates returned to Colchis, sailing up the Euphrates River to the Apsaris River and along the coast to Dioscurias. If he were really trying to avoid the Romans, he should have taken more inland routes. However, Colchis's logistic value is demonstrated here as Mithridates was able to find more support within Colchis, and when he left, he had more money to pay for reinforcements, probably thanks to the treasure found in Sinoria, today, also Turkish with the G with the little smiley face on top, I'm sorry guys, or around Colchis. Ah, the classic ruler plundering the land to support his failing war. Now, we turn to the winter of 66 BC, because we're getting seasons now, isn't that great? And Mithridates is preparing to go off to fight in the west. Luckily for him, he stayed in Dioscurias, a lovely town that managed to escape all the problems of the Hellenistic period that occurred in Colchis. It became a big key city and was one of the few places that supported him to the bitter end. Ah, oh, this is such a lovely story. It brings a tear to my eye. I'm, I'm wiping away a teardrop right now. So, speaking about Dioscurias, let's talk about Dioscurias. We've mentioned it in passing, such as in the Jason and Argonauts episode, where we learn that the twin demigod brothers Castor and Pollux were called the Dioscuri. That city is called Sukumi today. So, around 100 BC, the city of Dioscurias issued a series of bronze coins, pictures of which will be on the website. Isn't this so exciting? We actually have money. These coins were rather like other coins issued by cities around the southern coast of the Black Sea. But they don't have dates, or a ruler on them that help us identify when they were made. Because of this, we can't really tell when Colchis came under Pontic control, but as mentioned earlier, best guesses are around 100 BC. While these coins can't give us a date, they have some very interesting iconography adorning them. They depict the foundation of Dioscurias by Castor and Pollux, and link the city with the Greek god of wine, Dionysus. Mithridates was a big fan of Dionysus, even going so far as to call himself Mithridates VI Eupater Dionysus. I'm just going to mention we have a tradition on this podcast with having very humble rulers, Looking at you, Alexander the Great and Tiglath Pileser, King of the Universe and everything else, the distribution of this coinage indicates that there might be some sort of exchange of goods between the Crimean region and Dioscurias, possibly even the rest of Colchis. Sadly, archaeologists have only found the hoard of coins off the coast of Sukumi, and none of these hoards have been found in Colchis. However, more hoards have been found along the north coast of the Black Sea, all the way from Olbia in Ukraine to Gorgipia in Russia near Crimea, or even in the Chersonesis, which is on the outskirts of Sevastopol. Uh, this distribution of hordes along the coast suggests that an exchange of goods did exist between Dioscurias and the North Black Sea coast, and what looks to be like Colchian amphorae were discovered in the Mithridatic levels of cities along that coast. So I'm not an archaeologist, but I'm guessing that Mithridatic levels probably means, like, the soil level? I will have an archaeologist on this show sometime soon, if he agrees to it. 
he can explain a lot more. Anyways, what's surprising to me is that coinage was prevalent in Dioscurias, as the tradition of bronze coinage was rather non-existent for quite a while. Like, we mentioned coinage before, but like it was just like these massive blocks of metal, essentially. Now, at a site in Vani, discovered in 1969, more bronze coins of the Mithridatic period were discovered in a hoard of 119 coins total. Pictures on the website. All of these coins are from Vani, except one from Eshera that features a unique lotus design. These coins are usually attributed to Mithridates of Colchis, but we can't confirm that. But they do bear the type of star usually found on the Pontic Civic bronze coins. Since they were in Vani, many archaeologists think that these coins may have been minted in Vani itself. I'm going to finish the episode off here. I know it's a shorter one, but due to Hurricane Nicholas and other life events, I have been unable to dedicate much time to writing and reading, but I am trying. In two weeks' time, we'll return to talk about the entrance of Pompey Magnus, Iberia, during the Mithridatic Wars, and what the Kartlis Chovreba had to say about everything going on. The end of the Mithridatic Wars and the beginning of Roman control in Episode 9, The Mithridatic Wars, Iberia. Also, I'm removing the mid-show break because it's quite a lot of work to edit around it and I'm quite lazy, especially when I can just do all the housekeeping at the end of the episode. So if you guys listen to this after listening to the first few, just know this is happening. Before signing off, I would like to give major thanks to Professor David Brown from the University of Exeter, without whose book, Georgia and Antiquity, this episode would not have been possible. His book has been the best source about Colkian history that I've found so far especially when Iberia ends up having more sources of the two. So thank you so much for your work. And if you do listen to this, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I know we've been it before, but just thanking you so much. Now, to support us, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. On Twitter at History underscore Georgia. On our website at historyofsacadvelo.com. Or on our email at thehistoryofsacadvelogeorgia at gmail.com. Sacadvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. If you would be so kind in aiding with purchasing resources, I have a link to the Amazon wishlist in the transcription and on the website, but it's only if you want to. If you want an absolutely free way to support us, a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast host goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about the wonderful country of Georgia. Madlaba da Nachfamdis, and thank you for listening to the history of Sacadvelo, Georgia. See you next time.